Just one announcement before <clears throat> this morning's talk. Uh, our Lady of Good Counsel Retreat House desires to keep our retreats affordable and never turns anyone away for an inability to pay. Therefore, a collection will be taken up during Sunday Mass to support our ministry and building projects. Please include your prayer intentions. Thank you for your donations to Manifest Love Made Visible at Good Counsel Retreat House. And I just personally want to thank Father Coulter um, just for all the work that he's done during this time of lockdown and providing different virtual retreats and days of recollection and really keeping, continuing to feed um, not only the people here, but a lot of different people from across the country who use the retreat house. And so, so I'd also thank all of you who have joined us by live stream. And uh, I keep forgetting to look into the camera and welcome you. And so now the late's better than never. And uh, we're glad that, that many of you are able to join us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. Let the light of your face shine upon me. Watch over me, lead me, and guide me. That with you evermore I shall be. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. Mary, my mother, St. Joseph, my father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So on this last morning, it's always a time of reorienting to go back into the world. And, uh, and so what I'd like to do is, is sort of try to tie some things together and um, and go back to where we started from. And we started in reflecting on these letters of John Paul II, where he says that the program for the church in the third millennium is to start afresh from Christ. Right, to start again from Christ. And, uh, and then he talks about how, like the rosary is the ideal prayer to start again or start afresh from Christ because it introduces us to him and we get to know him. And we contemplate his face with his mother or at the school of his mother. And that the Eucharist is, in fact, the face of Christ. The Eucharist is, in fact, the face of Christ. And so as we put out into the deep or throw our nets out for a catch, And sometimes it's a scary proposition. It's like, oh, I could throw my net out and uh, I might not catch anything or somebody might reject it or somebody might steal my net. We can have confidence to do so because we know the face of our Lord. Right? Because we know the face of our Lord. 
And we've also talked about the times in which we live and, and the real objective difficulty that we find ourselves in right now. Like objectively, I can say, I have never lived in a more uncertain world than I live in right now. Like we live in a crazy world. We live in a crazy world. Two years ago, like the church was completely upended with the McCarrick scandal. And then we started having clergy scandals, clergy scandals, clergy scandals. And before we can get those resolved, <laughs> the coronavirus comes. And now we're coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus. Locally on top of that, you know, our own bishop went on medical leave and he's been gone for the last eight months. And, and we pray for him and we pray for his recovery. Just objectively, that's a lot. Like it's a lot. And then there's racism and we had riots in the city of Lincoln and they burned a building. Like, why does that happen in Lincoln, Nebraska? Like, how does that happen in Lincoln, Nebraska? My friends from the East Coast are calling me and they're like, well, at least you don't have these things going on. I'm like, yeah, we do. Like, it's been crazy. Like, churches closed, Sunday mass obligation dispensed, like all of those things are just new things and they're very crazy. And so, so I want to look at that a little bit more, but in the context of John chapter 14. And so at the Last Supper, Jesus says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God, have faith also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If there were not, I would not, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself so that where I am, you also may be. Where I am going, you know the way. Thomas says to him, Master, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, then you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip says to him, Master, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus says to him, have I been with you for so long a time and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me is doing his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe because of the works themselves. Amen, amen. I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and will do greater ones than these because I am going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything of me in my name, I will do it. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so in the midst of the storm that we find ourselves in, I found myself going back to like, how has our Lord prepared a place? In a very specific way that he prepared a place was through St. John Paul II as he laid out his plan for the third millennium. And even before that, there was this very interesting thing. I'm gonna talk about some private revelations today and I just think they're interesting. I'm not endorsing, I'm not, I'm just, I just think they're interesting things to think about. When I was a seminarian, some friends turned me on to a book called The 40 Dreams of St. John Bosco. And, uh, and he has this very famous one. And, and so I'm just gonna read the, a summary of that. So St. John Bosco says to these boys that are in his oratory, try to picture yourselves with me on the seashore or better still on an outlying cliff with no other land in sight. The vast expanse of water is covered with a formidable array of ships in battle formation, prows fitted with sharp spear-like beaks capable of breaking through any defense. All are heavily armed with cannons and incendiary bombs and firearms of all sorts, even books, and are heading toward one stately ship mightier than them all. As they try to close in, they try to ram it, set it afire, and cripple it as much as possible. This stately vessel is shielded by a flotilla escort. Winds and waves are with the enemy. In the midst of this endless sea, two solid columns, a short distance apart, soar high into the sky. One is surmounted by a statue of the Immaculate Virgin, at whose feet a large inscription reads, Help of Christians. The other, far loftier and sturdier, supports a communion host of proportionate size and bears beneath it the inscription, Salvation of Believers. The flagship commander, the Roman pontiff, the Pope, seeing the enemy's fury and his auxiliary ship's very grave predicament, summons his captains to a conference. However, as they discuss their strategy, a furious storm breaks out and they must return to their ships. When the storm abates, the Pope again summons his captains as the flagship keeps on its course. But the storm rages again, standing at the helm. The Pope strains every muscle to steer his ship between the two columns. 
from whose summits hang many anchors and strong hooks linked to chains. The entire enemy fleet closes in to intercept and sink the flagship at all costs. They bombard it with everything they have, books and pamphlets, incendiary bombs, firearms, cannons. The battle rages ever more furious. Beaked prows rammed the flagship again and again, but to no avail. And as unscathed and undaunted, it keeps on its course. At times a formidable ram splinters a gaping hole into its hull, but immediately a breeze from the two columns instantly seals the gash. Meanwhile, enemy cannons blow up firearms and beaks fall to pieces, ships crack up and sink to the bottom. In blind fury, the enemy takes to hand-to-hand to -hand combat, cursing and blaspheming. Suddenly the Pope falls seriously wounded. He is instantly helped up, but struck down a second time, dies. A shout of victory rises from the enemy and wild rejoicing sweeps their ships. But no sooner is the Pope dead than another takes his place. The captains of the auxiliary ships elected him so quickly that the news of the Pope's death coincides with that of his successor's election. The enemy's self-assurance wanes. Breaking through all resistance, the new Pope steers his ship safely between the two columns and moors it to the two columns. First to the one surmounted by the host, then to the other topped by the statue of the Virgin. At this point, something unexpected happens. The enemy ships panic and disperse, colliding with and scuttling each other. Some auxiliary ships, which had gallantly fought alongside their flagship, are the first to tie up at the two columns. Many others, which had fervently kept far from the fight, stand still, cautiously waiting until the wrecked enemy ships vanish under the waves. Then they too head for the two columns, tie up at the swinging hooks and ride safe and tranquil beside their flagship. A great calm now covers the sea. Just kind of interesting. <laughs> Lots of people believe that that's kind of a prophecy that's been or being fulfilled. But it provides an image for these three letters that we've been reflecting on. The one that says to put out into deep water for a catch. And then the two that anchor ourselves, that anchor us in the protection of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the one who knows how to contemplate the face of our Lord and the other that is the face of our Lord. And if we apply it to our own lives, that means when we feel ourselves in the midst of that sea and we ourselves are being bombarded by the enemy, and that comes in the form of distraction. It comes in the form of attacks on the family. It comes in the form of division within our family system, our church, all of the stuff that's going on, confusion, bad leadership. When we find ourselves in that place, we ourselves have to anchor ourselves between those two columns because it's the only thing that brings calm in the midst of the storm that we find ourselves in. And the storm that we find ourselves in is also something that our Lord has prepared us for. And sometimes we forget that. We forget that our Lord prepared us for this.
Another private revelation thing that I just think is interesting is many of you are probably familiar with Pope Leo XIII's vision that he had in which Jesus is in conversation with Satan. And Satan says to Jesus, if you give me 100 years, I will destroy the church from the inside. And Jesus says, okay, you have 100 years. And this so shook Pope Leo XIII that he, he wrote a minor exorcism. He started promoting the St. Michael the Archangel prayer. That's when the St. Michael the Archangel prayer became normative after masses. To protect us from that. Interesting factoid, 33 years after that dream, which is the time of our Lord's life, was the miracle of the sun at Fatima. That's kind of an interesting thing. What happened in the Fatima revelations, like the most famous kind of Fatima revelations that we know or that we hear quoted about are that souls are falling into hell like snowflakes. Some of the snowflakes are black snowflakes. Why are they black snowflakes? Oh, those are the priests. And that more people go to hell or falling into hell because of sins against the flesh or sins against the sixth commandment than any other sins. So interesting factoid. A hundred years and two days after the miracle of the son at Fatima, the hashtag Me Too movement started. I just think that's an interesting factoid. So if the hundred years maybe starts at the miracle of the sun and there's this warning from the Blessed Mother, like this is what you have to watch out for. Then a hundred years go by. And then our Lord says, okay, your hundred years are over. I'm just going to unveil this so that everybody can see what's been going on. And that unveiling has been happening in the entertainment industry in politics and in the church. And we can look at it all and say, how is this possible? Or we can look at it all and say, well, that's what our Lord said would happen. But he also is not abandoning us in that. He's also not abandoning us in that. I was having a conversation with somebody one day and I said, what did you think the church would look like after that hundred years was over? If you believe that's true. I don't know. I just thought it would be like peace and harmony and everything would be I'm like, there's been a hundred years of really bad sin going on. But our Lord's desire is to heal it, and our Lord's desire is to transform it, and it cannot be transformed if it's unknown. And so what stays hidden is like a cancer.
And our Lord has gone to prepare a place for us. And so in preparing a place for us, we have to stay anchored in him. Otherwise, all of that just seems so unmanageable. And we can stand in the face of sin if we are anchored in the face of Christ. Because it won't shake us. It can't affect us. If we stay there. And what's most obvious is in our current time, the church is in need of finding our Lord again. And so, interesting factoid. After the death of St. Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI is elected, and he writes three encyclicals that go together. On the theological virtues, except that he does them in reverse order. He does them in reverse order. Like when we sing the song, what order do they go in? Right? Faith, hope, and love. When we teach them in class, the theological virtues, we teach them faith, hope, and love. When Pope Benedict writes his encyclicals, he writes them love, hope, and faith. So is there a reason for that? In looking at those three encyclical letters, Deus Caritas, Spe Salve, which is the reading that we've been listening to at meals. It's that encyclical on hope. It's called Space Salvi or the hope that saves. And then Lumen Fide, the light of faith. He talks about how like the first thing that must be proclaimed is God's love, that it's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us in first John 4.10. And if I know that God, if I come to believe that God loves me, that gives me hope. And hope allows me to make the act of faith, which is to entrust my life completely to our Lord, to abandon myself to our Lord. But I cannot abandon myself to our Lord if I don't know he loves me. Because that's just blind faith it's not going to go anywhere. And our Lord doesn't want us to act outside of our freedom. And so there's this deep need to know the love of God first, and that provides hope. Hope is born of that, and then hope leads us to make the act of faith, to be converted. But before he finished the document on faith, kind of probably while he was writing it, he called for a synod on the new evangelization because we are going to need to evangelize a lot of people and call them to begin again from our Lord. And so bishops from all over the world, they come to the synod. And after the synod, Pope Benedict resigns. And then Pope Francis was elected and he's the one that ends up writing the document Evangelii Gaudium based on the Synod on the New Evangelization, which is very much focused on the preaching of the gospel and returning to the preaching of the gospel. 
And sometimes people in the church, there's like this division and deflection and all these things that go on and people don't like Pope Francis or they like Pope Francis and they want to like interpret everything he's doing as if he's changing the laws in the church. And the easiest way to just kind of get along is to assume he's always talking to somebody who has no idea who Jesus is. That kind of helps. He's always just proclaiming the gospel to somebody and starting a dialogue with them and hoping that they'll have a conversion and come along. And when we read what he's written, that's what comes through. And he finishes and promulgates Lumen Fide, the document on faith. And then he called for a year of mercy because mercy leads to conversion. John Paul II said the church's that the church's mission is to call people to conversion and conversion to God is always the fruit of rediscovering his mercy. That people are converted as they rediscover the mercy of God. And we see that all over the gospels. The woman caught in adultery is completely exposed. Our Lord bends down to write in the sand. Why? because that's where she was looking and he wanted her to see him. To see his look of love. So that his look of love would penetrate her gaze of shame. Or the Samaritan woman at the well who starts this dialogue with Jesus, probably super annoyed that he was at the well in the middle of the day because she's used to being able to go there to avoid people. And he promises her living water and she tries to pull a fast one on him, sort of. Like, give me that water always. Okay, I'll give you this water, but go get your husband. Crap. Well, I don't have a husband. Like, maybe he doesn't know these things about my life. I don't have a husband. No, you don't have one. You've had five and the one you're with now is not your husband. Go get your husband. And then she has to realize, wait a minute. He's offering me living water, even though he knows all those things about my life that I don't want anybody to know. And in that moment, she receives mercy. Had he not called her to expose that about herself, she wouldn't have received mercy. She would have thought she got away with something. He promised me living water, but he doesn't really know that I'm a huge sinner. So he really wouldn't have given that to me if he knew I was a huge sinner. The only way for mercy to be received is for the truth to be revealed. And we live in a time of the revealing of truth. And that's happening in the broad church. Sometimes it's happening with our family life. Sometimes it happens within marriages. Sometimes it happens within our priesthood or it happens in our own life and our own conversion. And there's an amazing thing that happens when we can bring that to our Lord and see his face. 
And that's when hearts are changed. He's prepared a place for you. And he's prepared a place for the church. When he says, cast your net over the side of the boat, you can trust him that he's going to take care of you. And there are armies that he's sending to help the church heal right now. But sometimes, oftentimes, those armies look like the first disciples, like they're not the people you want them to be. If we were living in the time of Jesus, we would have been like, couldn't Nicodemus have just converted and been the Pope? Like, like, cause he was like, he kind of had it all together. <laughs> like, why do we have this fisherman who's like super rash and like is always making these huge sweeping statements. <laughs> They're not the people that we always want them to be. Sometimes in our own life that applies. Right? Sometimes like, I don't want, you know, like I had an amazing kind of revelation about my own life a couple of weeks ago. And I was in Kansas city and I was, uh, I went to see a friend who runs a ministry down there. And he's an ex charismatic Protestant. who's not charismatic. He's still charismatic, but he's being an evangelical Protestant and he has a ministry for, people with same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, things like that. He's an amazing person. And he was like, and I was just like, hey, I'm going to stop by and just visit. And he was like, well, well, we'll all pray with you. And, and I don't do that very much. Like I don't sit around with a bunch of evangelicals while they're praying with me and giving me words of knowledge. And everything they said to me was true. And it like lifted, there was something that was lifted in my life that I didn't know was even like an issue and it was lifted. And, and I walked away going, man, that was so good. And do you think like 20 years ago, I was like, I want to go to like an ex-evangelical Protestant, like who <laughs> does a ministry for transgender people. That's going to be the thing that heals me. Like, like we don't say that, like, it's not like that's what I want it to be. <clears throat> And sometimes people don't want, like they don't want to get healed with a therapist. Like, I don't want to get healed with a therapist. I want to get healed by praying all of that. Like, sometimes we have that. And sometimes people don't want to go to 12-step fellowships. Like, I don't want to like have to go to a 12-step fellowship to figure out that I never knew who Jesus was. Like people, we have all these things, like we don't want it to be that way, but our Lord sends all these things to us. You know, and my dear friend, Sister Miriam, James Heidland, like, like her motto is like, go big or go home. So, uh, so when it comes to transformation, do whatever it takes to be transformed, right? Do whatever it takes because our Lord has prepared a place for you, right? Do whatever it takes. Like don't settle in your own life and don't settle in the church because sometimes like even the church is settling, like good enough, you know, and people are just complaining all the time. And half the time I agree with their complaining, but there's something else you could like do whatever it takes. 
you know, like do whatever it takes. I've heard stories of people who used to drive two hours to attend mass on Sundays who refuse to go to mass on Sunday now because their state says you have to wear a mask. Like what the, what the world is going on? People used to drive two hours to receive the Eucharist and now they're refusing to receive the Eucharist because the state says they have to wear a face covering. Like, like that is not the ultimate persecution. Receive the Eucharist, like our Lord wants you. And we let these things get in the way and it's just a distraction. Or if you're not allowed to go to adoration because your church is closed, like drive your car and sit outside the church just to be close to him. It's not the same thing. I know it's not the same thing. Our Lord knows it's not the same thing. But maybe you'll learn what the parable of the persistent widow means. Right? The persistent widow, go knock on the door, ask for something. And the master of the house doesn't answer the door. And so she keeps knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door. And then our Lord says, if he won't get up because of his charity, he'll get up because of your persistence. And that's not like being violent or disruptive or telling people they're doing the wrong thing. It's just like, if that's what you need, then do it because our Lord has prepared a place for you. You know, our Lord has prepared a place for you. And we can be confident in that. And sometimes we have to be creative in the ways that we find, we find our way back to him. Because he truly wants you to have joy. He truly wants you to have joy. And sometimes it takes, sometimes it takes a while to get there. Like I am super stubborn. I have 25 stories about like this one time Jesus totally revealed his love to me in an extraordinary way. Why do I have 25 stories? Because I'm stubborn. <laughs> and even though like I knew he was there, like uh, I forget. Because he's trying to get me to figure out that he loves me in the normal things, not just the extraordinary things. And I'm learning that. Now, if we all lived our life as if we were beholding our Lord's face and the normal things, what would that do to your life? What would it do to the people around you? Like, it would change their world. And that's the opportunity that sits in front of us right now. And it's only possible if we ourselves begin by anchoring our hearts. Between those two pillars, by contemplating the face of our Lord and continuing to learn to do so from his mother who did it better than any of us. And so today, as we conclude this retreat, we recommit ourselves to him. We recommit ourselves to him. To set our faces firmly towards his face and recommit ourselves to doing whatever it takes in order to surrender ourselves and abandon ourselves to him fully. At mass later, we'll 
in lieu of the creed, we'll do the renewal of baptismal promises because like that is the way the church gives us to do that recommitment. And, uh, and I just invite you over the next hour to reflect on those questions. Do you reject Satan? And to reflect on what sin in my life needs to be rejected. Selfishness, pride, self-reliance, lust, gluttony. Like what sin do I want to renounce? Do you reject all his works? What are the sins that have affected me that I need to renounce? Because they're the works of Satan. These are like sins committed against me, resentments that I'm holding, unforgiveness in my heart. All his works and all his empty show and all his empty promises. Like what are some of the lies I believe or the things that get in the way, the distractions, they might just be the distractions. Like that would be a really beautiful thing to renounce distractions. In the name of Jesus, I renounce Netflix in general. In the name of Jesus, I renounce Charlie from Emergency Awesome, which is a great YouTube show if you really like comic book movies, but like, why do I spend time on it? I don't know. I actually really like it, but these are things that I could renounce. Right? Did you ever like pull out your phone to say your prayers? And then five minutes later, you're like on Facebook and you're somewhere else, you're doing something else. And Oh yeah, I got this out because I was going to do spiritual reading. And now I'm reading like, you know, this really deep study on like why cigarettes are good for you if you have coronavirus, right? Just saying, I don't know, I'm just making things up. <laughs> so all the distractions, and then we reaffirm our belief in our faith and our trust in God, the Father, Jesus Christ, his only son, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, etc. And so it's just a time to reflect and and just let our Lord take you wherever our Lord wants to take you for the rest of the morning. And, uh, and we'll have mass at 11 and then lunch and lunch is not silent. So, so I'll get to meet some of you that have been silent the entire time in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for preparing a place for us. Help us to see the path that leads there and help us to remember that you are that path, that you are the way. We ask you to particularly just send us the people that we need in order to make, to heal our hearts that our hearts may be whole again. And just as your face reveals the fathers, we ask you for the grace that our own faces may reveal yours, especially in our families, with our friends, in our parishes. But we ask that our faces may reveal your love to the entire world around us that is in such need of your mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.